This podcast was sponsored by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and the speakers were compensated for their time. Statements in this podcast reflect the medical expertise and opinions of the presenter. Welcome to this podcast where we will be learning about atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or ASCVD identifying high-risk patients, including those with diabetes, and how we can reduce the burden of elevated LDL cholesterol. Today I'm joined in the studio by Thomas Smith, who spoke with Dr. Norman Lepore about this topic. Dr. Lepore is a preventative cardiologist, clinical professor of medicine at UCLA, an attending cardiologist at the Cedars-Sinai-Schmidt Heart Institute, as well as a director of clinical discovery at Westside Medical Associates of Los Angeles. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here to discuss this important topic of ASCVD in patients with diabetes. As I'm sure you're aware, patients with diabetes experience higher risk of cardiovascular events earlier in life than patients who do not have diabetes. In this first segment, Dr. Lepore explains the concept of cardiometabolic risk, which ties together the common risk factors underlying both diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Could you please explain the term cardiometabolic risk and elaborate on how we can use the assessment of a patient's cardiometabolic risk to guide therapy? So cardiometabolic risk is a term that's more commonly used to identify those risk factors for development of cardiometabolic diseases. And of course, the most common diseases that we're concerned about would be the development of diabetes, the development of coronary vascular disease, as well as complications such as stroke, acute coronary syndrome, peripheral vascular disease, as well as cardiovascular related mortality. So the cardiovascular risk really identifies those factors which we know uh, create a continuum of risk in patients to put them at risk for not only developing diabetes, but coronary vascular disease. And the main components of this cardiometabolic risk would be, for instance, dyslipidemia. That dyslipidemia would include patients with elevated levels of LDL, patients with lower levels of HDL, elevated triglycerides. What we're learning more is in terms of newer risk factors such as lipoprotein A uh, may play a uh, significant role in atherogenesis. Hypertension, the most common vascular cardiovascular disease afflicting uh, nearly 50% of the American adult population, very high prevalence. We know the hypertension is a component of cardiometabolic risk. Obesity, another very important component of cardiovascular risk by virtue of its association with the insulin resistance syndrome, as well as a variety of pro-inflammatory effects related to uh, the uh, adipocyte, the fat cell in the obese population. We know that these risk factors really serve as the core these are the risk factors that we know for many years and, and uh, have really been guided to aggressively treat in order to uh, mitigate cardiovascular risk. 
Uh, and uh, with research, we're learning, as I had mentioned, about other risk factors that may be associated with uh, this risk, uh, factors that may be associated with this risk. Some of the things that we're learning is that very low LDL levels really do seem to uh, provide incremental benefit to our patients. So I think that, you know, the risk factors that I mentioned, focusing on dyslipidemia, hypertension, obesity, insulin resistance, hyperglycemia, these represent, I think, the greatest attributable risk um, to developing cardiovascular disease and, and, and diabetes and risk factors that we all have to work on to uh, mitigate cardiovascular risk in the, in the diabetic population. And as I showed from the Steno2 trial, you know, being able to aggressively treat in a holistic fashion, not just lipids, not just hypertension, um, not just smoking cessation, but really taking a, an aggressive holistic approach to risk factor modification really makes a big difference in terms of longevity, in terms of preventing life-threatening cardiovascular events, which can lead to disability. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to really take the time in our busy environment to look at the patient one-on-one -on -one. because not every patient has an equal effect from a particular risk factor. Just like going out in the sun, not everybody is, has the same likelihood of developing a skin cancer from sun exposure. Well, not everyone has the ability or not ability, but not everyone has the predisposition, the same predisposition to develop coronary vascular disease from a particular risk factor, which is for me, part of cardiometabolic risk assessment is also to look a little deeper and to be able to personalize that risk assessment by doing cardiovascular imaging, such as carotid duplex scanning, coronary calcium scanning, and in certain cases, coronary CT angiography to identify these patients, which would be felt to be at even higher risk by virtue of this knowledge um, and therefore application of greater and more intense risk factor reducing treatments. That's fantastic. As Dr. Lepore has emphasized here, dyslipidemia and elevated LDL cholesterol in particular are major causative risk factors underlying cardiovascular disease. And the risk is amplified in patients with a combination of other comorbidities. That's right. And as Dr. Laporte touched on in the first segment, reducing LDL cholesterol is a central part of ASCVD risk reduction programs in diabetic and non-diabetic patients. In our next segment, Dr. Laporte discussed the evidence that supports use of LDL-lowering therapy. So what are the most important points to note regarding the use of lipid-lowering therapy in adults with type 2 diabetes mellitus? First, let me say it's overwhelming despite what many patients see in the lay press. From the very early lipid-reducing trials in the 80s and early 90s, like the 4S trial, the West of Scotland trial, CARE, all of these trials have one consistent theme, that the higher your LDL, the greater your risk, and the lower you bring your LDL, the greater risk reduction. And I think the cholesterol trialist collaboration kind of put it all together when they did their meta-analysis of lipid-reducing trials. 
most of the effect that we're going to have, however, is related to the use of pharmacology. Changing diets is important. You can probably achieve about a 10, 15% reduction of cholesterol levels, of LDL levels by being on an appropriate diet, such as the Mediterranean diet associated with increases in physical activity. But for the most part, that gets us closer to the goal, but doesn't get us to the promised land in terms of our LDL treatment goals. So the vast majority of patients are gonna require a statin and uh, uh, probably a third of those patients will need to be on another lipid lowering agent. And what we have to do as physicians is oftentimes we are fighting what's in the lay press. I, to this day, I have patients talking about their fear of being on statin therapy, whether it's developing diabetes, developing cognitive dysfunction, or you know, a whole host of other interesting potential side effects. So we're, we're battling that. And not only are we battling that to get the patient initiated, we're battling what seems to be a natural loss of compliance with time. And with that loss of compliance uh, comes a, an increase in cardiovascular risk. So it's clear that lipid-lowering therapy, if it provides significant enough LDL reduction, will reduce overall mortality. It will reduce cardiovascular mortality. It will reduce the incidence of ischemic stroke. It will reduce the incidence of acute coronary syndromes. So thereby, it's incredibly important that we initiate statin therapy, that we educate our patients to comply. They say the best defense is a good offense. And so what I will do in my practice is I will take the opportunity when I'm initiating therapy to really tell the patient up front without even having them ask me where I will talk about all of the speed bumps which seem to be in place in terms of getting patients to comply with lipid lowering therapies. I will use imaging as a motivator because patients don't like to see the plaque on the calcium score or on the CT or in their carotid arteries. That's a motivating factor. And I think what else is a motivating factor, they know if they are partners in our effort to reduce lipids that the hope of regression really plays an important role in actual patient compliance. That's very interesting. Dr. Lepore has certainly provided a comprehensive overview of the evidence for lipid-lowering therapy, but he also touched on data showing that patient compliance with lipid-lowering therapy declines over time. Yes, and tragically, we know that the majority of patients are not achieving LDL cholesterol goals and that patients who are less compliant with lipid-lowering therapy experience higher rates of mortality. In our next segment, Dr. Lepore elaborated further on the barriers to achieving LDL cholesterol goals in clinical practice and some strategies to overcome them. Dr. Lepore, what are the main barriers to patients achieving guideline-recommended LDL cholesterol goals? So let's review the main barriers to patients achieving guideline recommended LDL treatment goals because there are a number and you know I experience it every day in my clinical practice. I'll have patients uh, who will be referred to me by a primary care physician or an endocrinologist or you know another medical specialist actually even sometimes uh, gynecologists, because uh, they're becoming a little bit more in tune. They often are the primary care providers. 
uh, in patients. And you know, their mammograms readings will now include evidence of any calcified arteries. So all of a sudden they are becoming a little bit more concerned about atherosclerosis in uh, the patients that they are the primary care providers. But there are a number of barriers. First off, I guess in some cases, there are physicians who may not be aware of the most recent guidelines. Number two, I think in this very hurried uh, day and age where um, we're under a lot of economic pressure to see a lot of patients because reimbursement rates are low and, and, uh, and we're just rushed, you know, sometimes the physician may not make the time investment necessary to go over with the patient why they need to be on the treatment, why the treatment goals, and therefore that leads to physician non-compliance with the treatment goals. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there are the patient fears in terms of developing diabetes, developing cognitive dysfunction, and, and a variety of other effects, which is some fear which is inspired in the, in the lay literature you know, to this day. And in addition, non-compliance with the guidelines, there are patients actually who are statin intolerant. So they either cannot tolerate any dose of two or three statins, or they can only tolerate very low doses. And what I try to do in my practice, even though they may not achieve their goal with a statin, I'll do anything to keep a patient on as much statin as they can tolerate, whether it be the lowest dose or the lowest dose every other day. I want my patient, even if they're not, even if they're statin tolerant, to be on some dose of statin. Though I must say there are a population of patients that just say, you know something, I don't want to take a drug that I will not tolerate, which is perfectly understandable. And in those patients, those patients, we have to really turn the gears and make sure we don't leave them naked in terms of risk reduction and look at using drugs such as PCSK9 inhibitors and ezetimibe uh, or what we call non-statin lipid-lowering therapies in order to achieve our guideline-based LDL treatment goals. And I think that oftentimes the ball is dropped there. Why? Well, until recently, the insurance companies were no friend of ours in terms of getting patients access to these drugs. They either were they were outright denials, or if they were approved, there would be very high co-pays. So I think it's important for us to advocate for patients. If they, if they can tolerate their statins and get to goal, great. If they tolerate statins and they don't quite get to goal, that we don't stop there. And if they don't tolerate the statins, that we are, don't drop the ball and get them on other non-statin lipid-lowering therapies and achieve goal. Fantastic. In addition to the practical discussion of patient adherence, it's interesting that Dr. Lepore highlighted the necessity of physician adherence to guidelines as such an important factor in patients achieving LDL cholesterol goals. Yes, and it's been reported that less than half of patients are being managed according to AHA ACC cholesterol guidelines. So, for our last segment, I asked Dr. Lepore to discuss the current guidelines for management of LDL cholesterol and how he uses them in clinical practice. So what I'm going to do here is outline the current guidelines for the management of LDL cholesterol in patients with diabetes. First, let me say that the things that we talk about are guidelines. They aren't laws. 
you know, they aren't biblical. And the way I manage my patients is I use the guidelines as a guide, but I, I, I don't really have a cookie cutter approach to treating the diabetic patient in particular at risk of coronary vascular disease or actually having overt cardiovascular disease. The first thing that the guidelines do when I do is I try to do my best to assess their level of cardiovascular risk. And when I take into account their level of cardiovascular risk, and I like the 2018 AACC ACE guidelines where they actually have three assessments or three levels of risk, extreme, very high, and high. That extreme risk patient, for instance, they identify as the diabetic patient plus established clinical ASCVD. So in that particular population, which is a lot of my patients, because as a cardiologist, I typically don't see diabetic patients unless they have overt cardiovascular disease. So in that patient population, they're actually recommending LDL desirable levels of less than 55 milligrams per deciliter, or they're recommending non-HDL goals of less than 80 milligrams per deciliter. That's something in my clinical practice, I tend to, um, I tend to be uh, following. So that's in the extreme level, at the very high risk level, which they define as diabetes plus major ASCVD risk factors, such as the presence of hypertension, tobacco use, low HDL, CKD stage three, four, et cetera. They're recommending LDL treatment goals less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. Remember that the non-HDL is an important part of the assessment of lipids in the diabetic because they tend to have higher levels of triglyceride and triglyceride-rich lipoproteins such as VLDL. So the recommendation would be an LDL less than 70 or, or non-HDL cholesterol less than 100 in the very high-risk case. And their high level is basically being diabetic which the desirable level would be less than 100 milligrams per deciliter LDL and, and less than 130 milligram per deciliter for, um, for uh, non-HDL cholesterol. So, you know, I, I tend to be very aggressive and uh, I sort of pick and choose what I like from the different guidelines. The ADA guidelines that were put out in 2019, I think represented a very important uh, advancement and basically what they say if, and most of my patients are 40 years of age or over, if you're considered high risk, which most of my diabetic patients are, the recommendation is if the LDL is 70 milligrams per deciliter higher, despite maximally tolerated statins, that we consider adding additional non-statin therapy to these patients. I think one of the important things to do with these patients who are considered high risk is to start them right away on their high intensity statin rather than going through a period of titration where let's say you start them on 10 milligrams and 20 and then 40 and then 80. Oftentimes these patients are lost to follow up um, and therefore they're either taking, they stop their statin or they're taking the dose that you would not necessarily have stopped the titration. So one of the things that I do in my high-risk patient cohort and my, my very high-risk and my extreme-risk patients, I put them on their high-intensity statin um, right off the bat. And the AHA-ACC 2018 guidelines are, are very consistent with that, basically saying for secondary prevention in diabetics, you really want to achieve, um, if the patient still has an LDL 
of 70 or higher or non-HDL cholesterol of 100 or higher on maximally tolerated statins to consider adding, or you should add, uh, not consider, but you should add either a PCSK9 inhibitor or azetamide um, and work towards still achieving your LDL uh, treatment goals. And I think that the one thing I, the one caveat I'd like to add, and this is from the European guidelines, and I think that this is a, a, this is a risk category we don't really talk about much, but what they're saying is the following, and this is where they actually have an LDL treatment goal of less than 40 milligrams per deciliter, or for those patients with ASCVD who actually experience a second vascular event within two years, not necessarily the same type, so it could be an acute coronary syndrome first and then an ischemic stroke, while on maximally tolerated statin therapy, they're pushing for even more aggressive LDL reduction of less than 40 milligrams uh, per deciliter. So over time, the guidelines have, I think, one thing in common is they become much more aggressive with uh, LDL reducing strategies. I think that the European guidelines have taken into account uh, the use of uh, icosopentanoic acid uh, for patients who uh, also have associated hypertriglyceridemia. But I think the important point I'm making is I, I actually look at atherosclerosis as a malignancy, as a malignant type of disease. And, you know, we have, the, we have certain malignancies which aren't particularly life-threatening, like a basal cell cancer, and then we have horrible ones like pancreatic cancer and melanoma. And so what I try to do is I try to risk assess my patients in terms of what I think is the relative malignancy of their atherosclerosis and the kinds of factors that I like to look at to determine how malignant their atherosclerosis is, number one. The earlier age of onset, the more malignant, the more atherosclerosis I find in different territories, coronary territory, carotid territory, peripheral vasculature, and this could be by imaging, the more malignant the disease process. Add comorbidities, like diabetes, elevated triglycerides, elevated lipoprotein A, adds to the malignant predisposition. And the fact that patients actually break through guideline-based therapy makes to me that disease that much more malignant. And the more malignant the disease is, the lower my LDL treatment goals will be. And you will find in my particular practice, if you were to look at the charts of my patients, who are considered very high or extreme risk, it will not be unusual at all that you will see LDLs in the 15, 20, 25, 30 range. Now, one clinical pearl I will give you is that the, the estimated LDL cholesterol becomes very, uh, a very poor indicator of, LDL of actual LDL levels in patients with very low LDLs. So before you back off, because for whatever reason, on your lipid treatments in patients who may have very, very low LDOs, single digits, 10. What you want to do first is do another assessment. It could be looking at ApoB or it could be looking at, at, at uh, LDL particle number because what you'll find in those patients with very, very uh, low uh, estimated or calculated LDL levels that oftentimes their real, L, their real LDL by virtue of these other parameters um, will not be as low as you think. So I hope I answered some of these questions uh, in a helpful fashion and that they may have some impact in terms of how you approach your patient who has diabetes and a dyslipidemia.
That was excellent. We're really grateful to Dr. Lepore for providing us with some key points to consider when we are managing our patients with ASCVD and diabetes, and how we can reduce the burden of elevated LDL cholesterol. It's essential that we all work together to ensure we improve both prevention and treatment across the CVD continuum, particularly among high-risk patients, including those with diabetes. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm Christina Jones. And I'm Thomas Smith. And we hope you'll join us again next time.